We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about that concept of service, and kind of how that plays out, I, I would say, argue on some level, how that kind of proliferates through our lives as believers. Uh, have any of you ever been to Tacoma, Washington? Some of you have been there? Okay, so some of you have traveled a little bit. Uh, in Tacoma, I have not been to Tacoma, but um, I have been told in Tacoma there is a bridge that spans from Tacoma to the Kitsap Peninsula. So there is a bridge that's there that gets you across to that peninsula. But the bridge that is currently there in Tacoma uh, that makes that, that kind of spans that, that distance, is not the bridge that was there, especially in the 1940s. So it became a little bit famous. Um, it was actually called the, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. And uh, some of you, if you're history buffs, you maybe have actually heard this story a little bit. Um, but the Tacoma Narrows Bridge uh, was opened in 1940, so July 4th, 1940. Um, and on some level, it was kind of, kind of uh, um, put forward as this marvel of engineering. So you can get a little bit of look at the, at the bridge there. But it was a modern suspension bridge. And so you don't have to be, and some of you I know are in construction, so after the service you can correct any of my engineering mistakes that I make. Just, just keep in mind that I was theologically trained, not trained to be an engineer. So... Uh, but the Tacoma Narrows Bridge was a, a suspension bridge, right? So uh, um, there are compression forces in that bridge, but in large part, this is based off of tension, right? Off of tension. And you can see all the, um, uh, all the, the steel cabling and things that hold that bridge up. So uh, to cross this bridge, and we know of, of other suspension bridges, uh, maybe the most famous is the Golden Gate Bridge, those bridges work because of the appropriate amount of tension that are built into them, right? So they get you from one place to the other, uh, not in spite of the tension, but because of it. That's what holds it up. That's what keeps it in place. The Tacoma Narrows Bridge uh, was one of the early ones of this style, and it, w- it, was, it was promoted as this, this kind of marvel of engineering. So this was... This was uh, um, the, the scene on that opening day, uh, you can see all the cars that are coming across, which are fascinating, all the 1940s vehicles that are coming, uh, um, all of the pedestrians that are on that bridge. So it had a wonderful opening, uh, and it, it was hailed as this engineering marvel, but the Tacoma Narrows Bridge did not last real long. I know, the opening slide there was not, it was a little bit ominous. This is actual footage of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, and I'm just going to let it run as you watch. Do you notice anything strange about the Tacoma Narrows Bridge? I know. This bridge was nicknamed Galloping Gertie. Can you guess why? That's legitimate. That's what they called it. Okay? Someone decided to drive their car out in that image. This is some of the movement. Would you want to drive across that bridge? I don't know that we would, because this is what happens. On this day, 40 mile an hour winds, and some of you that are maybe engineers know that 
uh, wind over 35 miles per hour starts to create some kind of harmonic resonance and it starts to amplify itself. So again, theologian, not engineer. Um, But that's what was happening on the Narrows Bridge. There is a guy standing right there. Can you see him? I don't know why he would be out there. That makes no sense. Or that car, car, right? But on this day, uh, the winds were over 40 miles an hour and it just started working on itself. And it started building and building and building until, as you can guess, what happened to the bridge. Not only would you not want to drive across it, um, but at some point here, you weren't going to have the option, right? There it goes. You can see some of it starting to come down. A marvel of engineering that on some level lost its tension and its purpose as a bridge. It didn't last very long, Galloping Gertie didn't. Uh, It became a little bit of a tourist attraction until it fell to pieces, right? Maybe that is a good illustration for us when we talk a little bit about the topic we're going to talk about today of our service in the world. I don't think I'm alone in this, that there are times when it feels as though simply living as a Christian in the world in which we live, in the country in which we live, um, is nothing short of tense at best, right? Maybe at times you feel a little bit like galloping Gertie, ready to snap, right? The pressures of the world around you, the pressures of family and friends, the pressures at work, the pressures that come from inside of us ourselves, right? All of those things create this this, this tension in the world in which we live. Here's a little bit of good news on the outset. If you feel that tension, you're not alone. Every believer that has come before you has felt that tension, right? In fact, the Apostle Paul um, talks about that tension. How hard it is at times how difficult it can feel like at times to live in this world. Sometimes people will say one foot in eternity and one foot in the present. If you feel that tension, you're not alone. But at times it can affect, I think, our service. At times I think it can affect how we view the world in which we live. How we interact with the people around us. As I mentioned, you're not alone in that, because actually our text today, people of Israel, the Israelites in exile, felt that very same tension. In fact, on some level, we could maybe argue that their tension was cranked up even higher. And so what we want to talk about today is how do we, as believers, with God at our side and in us, live out our lives in service to Him and to our neighbors? So not only looking at heaven and eternity, which comes closer every single day, but what about the here and now? The days we spend on this earth, how does God want us to use those? And so that's what we're going to dig into today. How do we view ourselves? How do we view the world around us? And what does God ask of us 
to do and to live uh, in our lives of service. Uh, the Israelites in our text uh, were taken into exile. And I want to put this slide up for you at the outset because I think it highlights a little bit of the pain and the pressure and the tension that these Israelites were feeling. Now, our text that we're going to dig into is from the book of Jeremiah, but Psalm 137, and we're going to see at the end of our sermon, Psalm 138, were two songs, we could call them uh, uh, congregational songs, that were written in response to the text that we're reading from the book of Jeremiah today. And so this is verses 1 and 4, the Israelites singing this in Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? You can maybe hear their tension, right? You can maybe hear and feel their pain, so much so that they put it into word and into song. And I don't think they're alone because I think we feel those very same things. So, we're going to pull that apart today. We're going to talk about that. How do we view ourselves and our service in our world? Uh, I've got three points that we're going to look at uh, kind of through our text and pulled from Jeremiah. So if you like following along, if you kind of like to know where I'm headed loosely, uh, these are the three points I want us to look at from Jeremiah. Uh, we want to talk about um, what does it look like to be a Christian on the outside? What does it look like to be uh, a Christian on the inside? And lastly, what does it look like to be a Christian, a believer among the world and the people in which we live? So that's kind of going to kind of be the, uh, the path that we take. Now, our text today, as I mentioned, is from the book of Jeremiah. And just a little bit of historical background, uh, context for what's happening in Jeremiah 29. Uh, this is a map, and maybe some of you can kind of see it. Uh, Israel's on the left, and you'll see Jerusalem uh, just below the green Judah there. Um, Babylon on the right, right? So modern day Iraq. Um, but this gives you a little bit of the path of the historical setting into which Jeremiah 29 is taking place in our text today. So the Israelites had been, had been carted off into exile. And uh, as you know, with war, things don't happen kind of just all at once. Um, but the exile of the Israelites, of all of Israel, kind of took place in different chunks and throughout uh, the time period. Uh, so there were early, what we would call early deportations of the northern ten tribes of Israel, um, but eventually the bottom, the lower, southern two tribes of Israel, uh, Judah specifically, were eventually carted off to Babylon as well. And that was a pretty common military tactic at that time. Uh, um, we don't necessarily see that anymore today. Uh, but there were only three options for you. If, if, you were, if you were a nation that was conquered militarily, there were, there were really only three things that, that at least wise military uh, um, um, countries would do to you. Uh, the first is they just expel, expel you from your, from your land. So if they came in and conquered you, they'd just say, like, you have two, like you're either dead or you got to go, right? So then you would just run as a refugee to wherever you could go, wherever you could find safety, right? So the first uh, was, was just to expel you. Uh, the second one was to enslave you. So maybe uh, um, if, if you didn't die or run, uh, they, would, they would maybe enslave you, right? And you would have to, to work for that nation. Maybe the most famous one, especially within the Old Testament, 
talk about how the Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians uh, and how uh, Pharaoh used their slave labor to build all kinds of things, right? So that's the second one. So either you're expelled uh, or you're enslaved. Or the third option, um, and Babylon did this a lot. Actually, they on some level kind of perfected it. Uh, They would assimilate you, okay? So they would try to assimilate you. Uh, And so all of these things were kind of done to the Israelites, but especially the very last one, that idea of assimilation. Because you can even understand, and we're not maybe in the military, don't have military minds, but you can understand the problem with the first two, can't you? Uh, number one, it's, it's difficult and it's costly to conquer countries. And, and uh, so you put people to death, which takes time and effort, and you lose your own men. And if people run and if they flee, then in large part, they'll just be waiting in the wings, Right? Uh, fomenting dissension, uh, uh, maybe putting together raiding parties. So if you, if you let people run off, uh, their bitterness and anger at you as the conquering country isn't just going to disappear, right? So there's a little bit of issue with that one. If, if an entire country leaves, they're probably just plotting and waiting to come back and attack you, right? Um, the second one, though, uh, is a little bit hard too. So if you enslave a people, it takes lots and lots of... of, of peace and order and and military power to be able to do that because now you've brought them to your country, you're using them as manual labor, but how much do you think they like that? How much would we like that? Not at all, right? So again, that becomes a little bit difficult. So what Babylon did and on some level perfected or or put in place was this third option of of assimilating people into their their country and their nation. And on the surface, we think like... I. And maybe your mind's even going through that. Like, I don't know, like, would that work? Right? So if Canada conquered us, I heard someone snicker. If Canada conquered us, I used to be in Canada, right? Um, Wonderful people. They would not conquer us, but um, they would not attack us, right? But let's say Canada conquered us, and you all got shipped off to, where should we pick? Vancouver, let's, call, let's say Vancouver, it's beautiful. You've been to Vancouver, it's awesome, right? I was in Toronto, Toronto's wonderful too. But you get shipped off to Vancouver, it's beautiful. You're not enslaved, right? But you're not allowed to go back to your country. And you are offered some job opportunities. And you remember that Vancouver is a pretty great place to live because it's got the ocean and you can ski in the mountains up above right? And you have some access to, to, to a mortgage and to loans, and so you can buy a house and you can, you can start to connect in in Vancouver. And, and not only are you in Vancouver, but you're not the only one in Vancouver because all of us got shipped up there, or a lot of us got shipped up there. So then you start to see people that you know. And so over time, on some level, you can kind of understand why people would be okay with that, especially over just being straight up refugees or being enslaved, right? So Babylon figured that out. So they would ship people off to Babylon and they would incorporate them into the everyday life and living of their country. Now, they didn't just take everyone. Some of their plan was to do that strategically. So they would, in large part, bring um, the, we'd say this, the best and the brightest from it, from Israel would get shipped off to Babylon, right? So those that were fully capable of working, those that maybe had degrees, um, um, those that could, could add to Babylonian um, prosperity, they would bring to Babylon. 
um, those that they didn't deem as, as, uh, um, as beneficial for their country, they would leave in Israel and they were meant to stay there and kind of manage the things that were happening there because if there's a void in a country, someone else will come in, right? So that's exactly what happened uh, in our text here today from Jeremiah. Um, and this is a letter from the prophet Jeremiah, from God through the prophet Jeremiah to the Israelites who are actively in exile in Babylon. And there, there's probably lots of, of thoughts that maybe were going through their head as they were sitting there in Babylon. And I think there were temptations in a lot of different directions for how they were going to react to that. And so God sends a letter through prophet Jeremiah to the Israelites and says, here's how I want you to, to understand this. Here's how I want you to exist in your current situation, okay? So let's jump into our text, and I'm going to read for you uh, just verse 4, kind of the first half of verse 4. It says this, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so you are in exile. You've lost your house, your place of worship, your job, everything that you had in Jerusalem or in Israel are now gone. You are now in exile in a foreign country. How might you put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites at that time? How might you have reacted to that? Yeah, you'd be upset, right? Probably no small part of anger, right? Uh, you'd, you'd on some level, and, and um, as to how upset you were and, and what kind of actions you would take, that probably varied from person to person. But I would say this, um, I would argue that there is a very strong possibility that you wanted nothing to do with Babylonian culture, with Babylonian jobs, with Babylonian neighbors, with any of it, right? I think there was probably a, a, a real... And, and let me even say that, maybe a defensible excuse or reason why you would want nothing to do with Babylon, the country that you are in exile in. Like, we can understand that, right? Say, okay, that makes logical sense. I can see how people would react to that. Trouble is, there's a little bit of issue with that for us as believers. The idea that we want nothing to do with the land and the people and the community in which we live. Because it almost instantly sets up a degree of separation, right? Uh, this is a, a mosaic of a monk from the four to 500 AD time. Um, this man's name was Simeon Stylites, so, uh, or Simeon or Simon the Stylite. Now, you're probably thinking, I've never heard of this man. Um, and that's not surprising. In fact, if you have heard of him, I would be surprised. Um, but he was a part of this, this wave of believers, of Christians, that felt that uh, the way to get closer to God, the way to better understand God, the way to, to give God glory and honor was to separate oneself entirely from the sinful world around them. So Simeon did just that, and he did it in kind of a strange way. Uh, so he put himself up uh, on a tall pillar, on a small kind of wooden platform, 
And Simeon lived there for 37 years. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was what we might call an extreme form of monasticism, right? So what was his point? I'm going to separate from the evilness of this world. I'm going to separate from the evilness of the culture around me. I'm going to do nothing else but be in my own head uh, with my God above on this platform. And he did it for 37 years. And he didn't have an iPad or Netflix or Disney Plus or any of those things, right? On some level, we can understand that a little that desire to flee from the world in which we live. But the trouble is, God doesn't actually tell us to flee from the world in which we live. Um, In fact, he says something different. He says to serve and to love the world in which we are. But I think that can be a temptation for us as believers as well. Maybe we see the things going on around us, uh, we hear things happening around us. Maybe uh, um, we, we see things happening within uh, our kids' education with uh, the generations that are coming up behind us. Uh, and the older we get, the more we, we, on some level, maybe become distressed by what is coming. And I think there's a very real temptation for us to want to hide away, to find to find a little monastery where I can gather around with my other Christians and let's just, we're going we're gonna to just have lots of potlucks with one another, right? And there's joy and there's beauty and there is, there's comfort and there's strength in us being together as believers. And in fact, Scripture says, encourage one another and even more so as you see the day approaching, But God also doesn't want us to pull away from the people in our world that desperately need to hear of the hope that only Jesus Christ can bring and to give. And so I think there's a temptation there. Simeon of Stylites, Simeon the Stylite, did it. Um, The Israelites, I think, were tempted towards it. And I think we are at times as well. When we feel that tension to simply pull away, to push away, separate ourselves from the world around us, okay? So that's kind of our first point. Sometimes we desperately desire or even purposely kind of become on the outside of the world in which we live, right? Okay? But I think that pendulum can go the other way as well when we talk about the inside. Continue with verse 5 and 6. God says to the Israelites through Jeremiah, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not, do not decrease. So what is God saying to the Israelites and on some level to us? He's actually saying settle down. Work, right? Um, become a part of the Babylonian um, culture and, and nation that you're now living. Now, how do you think that would have gone over from Jeremiah to the Israelites? I, I, I'm guessing they were, there were some that were really upset. Like, what in the world? Like, why, why would God tell us to do this? 
These Babylonians, are, they're, they're unbelievers, they're pagans, they're heathen, they conquered our nation. Why would God want us to integrate on some level into this country that we are exiles in? You, can maybe feel, you maybe would have asked that very same question, right? What in the world can God do through a command like that? Well, it's a good question, right? And I think it's also where there is our second temptation. So if our first is to completely separate ourselves almost in a monastic way from the world around us, at times I think there can almost be a temptation um, to become so assimilated and like the world around us that there is nothing distinctive in us any longer. A friend of mine told me a story. Uh, he was a mission, missionary, done some mission work in India. Uh, as you know, India, one of the, the, the main religion in India is Hinduism. And in Toronto, we had many Hindus that would, that would come worship with us, visit us, um, um, and many that had come to Christ as well. Um, but Hinduism is sometimes described as a, a religious sponge. So Hinduism um, has no problem just absorbing all of the things from all the other religions and philosophies around it. So uh, you, you like Jesus? No problem. We just, let's, we'll just suck him up. Like, we'll just put him into the sponge, right? Um, and so I had a friend that told me a story. He, he was in India and he got in a cab and on the dash uh, was this, this little figurine of, of Jesus. And he was a Christian missionary in India, and so he commented on it and said something about it. And, and the guy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I picked Jesus. He's mine. And he asked a little bit more. He's like, well, what, what do you mean by that? And he's like, um, yeah, he helps me stay safe in the car and, and kind of get around and things like that. Through the conversation, what he came to realize was, and especially within Hinduism, that there are, there are hundreds of thousands of gods that you can choose from, and guess which one he chose? The Jesus one. <laughs> put him on his dash, right? That was what was going to keep him safe. I think that can be a little bit of an illustration too of, of that pendulum going too far the other way, where we, we exist as believers in our world, but we are so absorbed uh, by the things and the movements and the philosophies and the, 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 um, the, the flow of culture that we look nothing different than anyone else around us. That we are completely absorbed and assimilated into the world, so much so that we lose the distinctiveness and the only thing that actually brings light and hope to our world. Now, you can understand that one too from the Israelites' standpoint. In fact, I can just picture the Israelite communities and, and different families were making different choices. Some said, no, we're, gonna, we're just going to separate we're going to go find our own little enclave and try to talk to Babylonians as little as possible. And others that say, you know what? Forget it. Like, I don't know when this is going to end. Um, God says 70 years, but I'm going to get a job. I'm going to settle down. In fact, I'll just bow down and worship these gods that the Babylonian emperor demands of us. And let's just fit in, right? Live below the radar. You can understand both of those. But herein lies the tension for us as believers and for the Israelites. God asks us not to hide ourselves away, not to become so assimilated that we lose the distinctiveness that we have in Christ, but to live among the people around us. And the truth is, 
there's a tension there because that's not easy. I would argue on some level, either direction is actually easier. Just hiding yourself away and having potlucks all day long, you could do that. <laughs> You'd be well fed, right? But are you letting your light shine in the world around you? And we can get so absorbed in the world around us that God, Christ, and Scripture simply become irrelevant. God asks us to be somewhere in the middle, among the world and the people in which we live. That's what our last verse references. Verse 7. God says this, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so what is God telling the Israelites there? He's saying live in Babylon, but don't be absorbed by it. Continue with, you will, you will bring a distinctiveness to Babylonian culture that they won't know on their own. But you pray for it in the place that you live. And you actively engage in the world and in the places in which you live, the places you work and with the neighbors in which, and neighborhoods in which you live. And that's not always easy to do. In fact, I would argue that's the tension we feel as believers with one foot in eternity and one foot on earth, right? So if you're there, you're in good company. But here's the promise. God says, I'm going to use you. And the truth is, he could have used a lot of different things. He could have used anything to share his word with our world. But you want to know who he chose to use? You, right? Believers that know the love and the hope of Christ, knowing that our sins have been washed away, we have been made clean in Christ, and that Christ brings a hope to this world which nothing this side of heaven can give. He's chosen to use you, redeemed and forgiven by Christ. Martin Luther once said this about our work, that tension in our world and in our lives. It says, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. It's a pretty beautiful quote, right? Because your good works, our good works, our service in this world do not earn for us salvation. That was done and it is complete and it is forever and it is final in Jesus Christ. You are forgiven, you are loved, your value in God's eyes is found in nowhere else other than Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so God doesn't need your good works and you can't earn your path to heaven. But you know who needs them? Your neighbor does and the world in which we live does. In fact, uh, the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther specifically, um, on some level, kind of revolutionized this uh, view, which I would argue is a biblical view of our existence in this world and our jobs uh, within um, theology. Sometimes we use that word vocation. In fact, in our men's group, we're walking through a book on just that topic. Luther would have said, Everything we do, the jobs we have, where you exist, the people you interact with, all of those, and he sometimes used this word, those ordinary things, those run-of-the-mill ordinary places, every single one of those give you opportunities 
to share Christ, and to love your neighbor. In fact, he pushed back pretty hard on that concept of monasticism, saying it's pretty much worthless. And he was a monk. (laughs) Because you were not serving God because he doesn't need your good works. And if you hide yourself away, you're not serving your neighbor or the world in which God has placed you. And so Luther would boldly say it is worth nothing. (laughs) But your work as a cobbler, right, as a blacksmith, um, um, all the areas that you live, Luther would have said those ordinary areas are opportunities every single day to show Christ, to share Christ, and to love your neighbor. The very same thing is true for us, right, and for you. And when we talk about that idea of service, and especially when I do it here at church and it's part of a sermon, uh, I think our minds maybe instantly go to, okay, well then, pastor's going to talk, he's talking about service in the church, like setting up and taking down chairs and um, um, bringing snacks on a Sunday morning and all those kind of things. And certainly that is a portion of service, but that is a small part of the way that you serve your God every single day in your lives, through your vocation, uh, um, um, through your friends, through your neighbors, through your relations, through your connections. Every single day you have opportunity to serve your God above and to love your neighbor. And maybe at times, it becomes a little too institutionalized that our service to God and God must love our service a little bit more if it's done in service to church rather than in the world around us. But that's not the case, is it? Right? In fact, it's the world around us, around you, that needs to be served, that needs Christ. And if you aren't willing to do that, who will? It's a responsibility. It's a remarkable privilege, too, to see our lives in every aspect as a life of service to God above and to the people around us. That is what God urged those Israelites to do and to be in Babylon. And one day, they would go back home. And brothers and sisters, one day we will too. One day God's going to take us to eternity. But until that day comes, you have the opportunity to love, to serve, and to share Christ with the world around you. And I think that's a responsibility and a privilege that we shouldn't take lightly, right? Our service to the Lord and around us. God doesn't take it lightly either because he finishes that Jeremiah chapter with hope. It says in verse 11, For I know the plans I have for, for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And this is not prosperity gospel that God is going to fill up our bank accounts before you get home from church this morning. Now this is talking about our eternal hope, right? And our eternal home. And that God is going to give you opportunities and he knows where you are going to go and the paths that you're going to take and the mission fields that you're going to be in. And he is going to use you, share Christ, to change hearts. The Tacoma Narrows Bridge, um, it was a wonderful engineering feat. Uh, 
and it was built on tension, right? You want to know when it failed? It's when the tension disappeared, <laughs> right? I think that's a good way for us to look at our lives this side of heaven. There will be tension there, and it's not going to be easy, and it'll be difficult. But God is using you and will use you to allow people and hearts and families and lives to travel to Christ and to find him and to find hope that this world simply cannot give. The bridge didn't have a problem with tension. In fact, it was doing what it was made to do. And the same is true for us as believers as well. You remember that psalm that I read, Psalm 137, where they're like, we're just crying, we're just going to sit at the river and cry. (laughs) We are not singing, we're not doing anything, we're just going to cry because we're in Babylon, right? Psalm 138, verse 1 says this, the very next psalm, I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Before the gods, I will sing your praise, right? It's a beautiful reality and a beautiful picture and on some level, an understanding that the Israelites understood what their role was in Babylon and when they got back home. It was to sing the Lord's praises in front of whatever gods the culture would place in front of them. To share Christ, share forgiveness, and to share love. Amen.